Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extraordinary technician. Her name is Luis Yamada, and she has been looking at markets, sectors, stocks for close to 40 years. She spent 25 years at Citigroup, eventually becoming their managing director. Um, Worked with many of the legends in finance, including Alan Shaw, and we had a really interesting conversation about how people use technicals to help their investing and their trading. Um, We don't really get as many technicians uh, in in the studios as I've liked, uh, as I would have liked. I've previously spoken to Jeff DeGraff, whose name basically refers to technicals, as well as Tom Dorsey, uh, Paul Desmond. Pretty much that's it for the people who are full-time technicians. I know they're out there. They work at various funds. Um, there are a number of people. I'd like to get Alan Shaw on here. I'd like to get John Roken here. There are a number of people I'd like to sit down and talk with. If you are a trader, if you work as a person who is a, a fundamental analyst and would like a little more insight as to why stocks and, and sectors and markets sometimes do what they do, then the technical side might provide some insight as to the timing of of how things happen. Um, that was part of my conversation with Louise. Uh, if you are interested in technicals, if you like anything on the more uh, wonky side, then this is going to be for you. With no further ado, my conversation with Louise Yamada. We know each other for a long time. I've been a fan of your work for a while. But for the layperson, explain what is technical analysis? Well, technical analysis is really the study of supply and demand in the marketplace whether a stock is under accumulation or whether a stock is in an uptrend or under distribution or in a downtrend. So so let's unpack that a little bit. Okay. Under accumulation generally means big institutions are accumulating, accumulating shares, shares on an ongoing basis. Right. Distribution is the opposite. Right. So, and simplistically, uh, on a price basis, because what we're following is price. We're not following any fundamentals. You're just following the price. Accumulation simplistically looks like a smile, and distribution simplistically looks like a frown. In other words, you, you've had a, a, a stock sell off. Mm-hmm. It's come down for a while. It's going sideways, and then all of a sudden, it starts going Turns higher. Um, you also referenced the phrase trend. Tell us what a trend is. Once a stock moves out of an accumulation pattern or a distribution pattern, it moves into an uptrend from an accumulation pattern or into a downtrend from a distribution pattern. And basically, a trend, uptrend is a higher high followed by a higher low. Higher low followed so by a series higher of steps, high. series of each steps, each one higher than the, the, and the one before. Downtrend Even the, the pullback is above previous exactly. pullbacks. Exactly. And, and a downtrend is the opposite. And that represents demand. Somebody's coming in to buy that stock without letting it fall below the prior low. So it's had a nice move up. It starts to soften. The mm-hmm. price comes down and someone says, I want more of this. That's a good price. They step in. Exactly. And that creates a floor on the price. Right. A ceiling is the opposite on a yes. downtrend. Mm-hmm. It could rally, but only so far because sellers come out. Exactly. And and is it fair to say 
what you're describing is just a battle between buyers and sellers, between supply and demand? Absolutely. So how does this differ from fundamentals? Well, fundamentals doesn't follow the stock price at all. Doesn't care about price. No, it looks at PEs, it looks at earnings, it could look at credit, it looks at all those uh, fundamental things about the company, the, the um, quality of the company, et cetera. But it's really interesting that if you think about it, the difference, well, I think we're going to get to that, but the difference is that, for instance, if you're at a cocktail party, you can guarantee someone that you're never going to buy a stock at the low the day it records record earnings, and you're never going to sell a stock at the high the day it cuts the dividend because you have this discounting mechanism where people smarter than you and I are taking action on the price of the stock. In other words, markets are somewhat efficient, mm -hmm. and a lot of the news that eventually comes out is either partially or fully reflected in the price exactly. before the news itself is released. Right. That, that makes plenty of sense. So Ralph Acampora once said something very interesting, and I... Full disclosure, I took the course, sure, uh, the so TA did course, I. with Ralph last yeah. century is when I did it. Mm -hmm. Fundamentals tell you what to buy. Technicals tell you when to buy. That's right. Discuss that. Yeah, I think that that's particularly valid from the perspective of uh, value investors, because value investors may go in too early. They may go in as a stock is still completing its downtrend. and then, Cheap stocks get cheaper. Yeah, and then they have to hold it through this entire, you know, finish the decline and hold it through the entire accumulation pattern. I, I always suggest that value investors keep a watch list. Mm -hmm. And then when the pattern starts to look like there's an interest out there for that stock is the time to start accumulating it. Well, who is going to be the buyer at the lows if not the value investors? Aren't they helping form that accumulation Probably. bottom? Yeah. But not all of them follow technicals, so some will be early right. uh, and, and means that their capital is being put to work and not seeing much of a return for a while. You like being a little later in that smile because yes. you're not tying up capital while it's going sideways or going down. Why do these charts actually work? That's a tough question. Yeah, it is a tough question. Um, sometimes they don't, and certainly. Well, nothing is a hundred percent. Nothing's a hundred percent. But when technical analysis is making you money, mm -hmm. what's the narrative rationalization behind why charts actually are effective? Well, I think because you are watching what other people are doing with their money, mm -hmm. basically, and when they stop buying, you start to see a frown develop, so to speak, and mm -hmm. uh, and then you see a support broken. I mean, there's the whole seven questions. Has a, has a stock um, had a move of substance that could reverse? We're going um, to go through all seven questions in, in a few minutes. Okay. Um, let me ask you one quick question. What do most people misunderstand about technical analysis? I think, well, first of all, a lot of people call it voodoo. I no, mean, it has such, sure. such names for their patterns as head and shoulders and double tops and flags and triangles, and everybody thinks that that could be uh, just ridiculous. But it should be considered a tool in the investing process, and it's a valuable tool. You have the fundamentals and you have the, the technicals. And as I said before, you know, you, the technicals are going to help you when the fundamentals could be fabulous and the price starts going down or breaking through support. And that's a warning that something to come 
in the fundamentals. They're not mutually Maybe exclusive. they're not mutually exclusive. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Luis Yamada. She is a technical analyst and runs the research shop Luis Yamada Technical Analysis. Let's talk a little bit about the modern era and, and how you, you came to technical analysis. Sometime last century... I was working for a gentleman named Guy Ortman who had taken the technical uh, analyst class at, at the knee of Alan Shaw. Mm-hmm. And he urged me to uh, also take the class, which I took with Ralph Akinpora. You you worked with Alan Shaw for quite a while, didn't I you? I definitely did. He was my mentor. And um, I got into technical analysis because I was picking stocks and watching them go up and watching them come back down. And I finally called the broker and I said, how do you know when to sell? <laughs> and what was the broker answer? And he said, he sent me some newsletters on technical analysis. I think the main one was Granville at that point. And uh, so I went to the Finance Institute and I took the first class with um, Ralph Ekampora mm-hmm. and Alan taught the advanced class in his uh, chart room. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that period, he offered me a job. So you must have been one of the uh, better students in the class? Well, let's hope. (laughs) So the fascinating thing about that era, and I heard this from Guy Ortman, and I heard it from Ralph Akampora, and and I've heard this about Alan Shaw, never saw from his mouth directly, Um, they used to do these charts day by day by hand. By hand. Point and figure charts. Every Absolutely. Day. We had and regular chart regular um supplied them not just the X's and O's, but the regular charts that we see uh honest people used to do those also every single day by hand. I've walked Private. into rooms with people manual charts on the wall right it's amazing we had a whole library on a uh, on a turntable with all the new york stock exchange stocks which we plotted each one point intraday reversal by hand and then that got translated into what people call the three point but what people look at as a three point today is not the classic three point which is derived from the one point and gives you a much broader sense of accumulation and distribution so let me ask you um an obvious technology question how much do we lose now that we no longer do this or at least most of us no longer do this by hand just anyone can punch up a a bloomberg terminal or anything else what is lost when when we've given up the manual uh drawing of charts and and can simply call one up anytime we want. What's missing is the degree of a top mm-hmm. or a bottom. Now, you, you can obviously see that on a chart, can't you, if you, you just don't pull it up? S- yes, you can, but you don't necessarily see the same breadth and volume of spread. It's the hard change, to describe the, the uh, mm-hmm. yes. The, the when you're looking at it day time. by day, you're noticing things that you don't see yeah. if you're just... Letting the computer draw it for you. Right. In 1998-99, we saw these tremendous two-year tops in, in the Bristol-Myers and all the drug stocks in, uh, in Merck. We saw it in the consumer goods, capital, I mean, um, Campbell Soup and Hershey Foods. I mean, these were tremendous two-year tops that led us to the understanding that something very different was coming about. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but if you're looking at individual stocks and individual sectors— the broad market started rolling over long before technology topped out. Oh, definitely. That was the last one. 98. Yeah. 
and, and that gave up the ghost long before the 80% drop in the NASDAQ. Right. Yeah. So that, that was an interesting uh, warning sign. So other than just the technology, what is the difference between the modern era of technical analysis and what people used to do 20, 30 years ago? I think that what's happening today is you have more and more traders and more and more people are extremely short-term oriented. I mean, they're looking at the trees and not the forest. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the important things is to understand where that short-term price action is taking place in the larger uh, trend of the stock or whatever it is you're So, So let's talk about time frames. What, what do you look at in terms of various time frames and how the length of the chart, be it minute by minute, daily, weekly, monthly, affects your interpretation? Well, I like to look at all of it. The short term is really is really daily noise, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I don't disagree. I, I find I, I really don't want to look at anything less than a weekly chart because mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day action is, is so random. Yes, appears. and almost, almost irrelevant. The weekly is where I start. And then I also like to see how that weekly is progressing within the longer-term monthly profile. And mm -hmm. also I watch the MACDs, the momentum indicators for the— So define what MACD is, I think, the average person listening. Well, um, it's the difference between two moving averages. I'm not going to get into the formula. So you could take a shorter-term moving right. average and a longer-term moving average. It's, it's a really a second derivative— uh, of a smoothed line. Is that a fair way to describe sure. it? And when one line crosses over or under the other, you get a buy signal or a sell signal. Now, there's been some controversy in some quarters that have said the golden cross, the death cross. Some of these have really been abused by amateur technicians. I'm glad that you brought that up because you're, you're absolutely correct. And from our perspective, we have only considered the very long-term crossings as valid. You're going to get the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving right. average crossing back and forth all among the themselves all the time, even within an uptrend. Any little pullback, the 50-day may pull down below the 200 temporarily. And I think that that is a, it's misleading to the average investor. Um, weekly, okay, maybe you look at it, but you have the same frequency of, of turnover. Mm -hmm. It does warn you that some kind of a correction or consolidation may be coming into play, but again, it can be within the uh, context of an uptrend or a downtrend. I like the monthlies, and we've done some backtesting historically, and the monthly momentum is has a very good history of pegging the sell signals at tops and getting you in a little more safely in the bottoms. So what two uh, moving averages would you use on a monthly well, basis? Well, for our, we use a 10-month and a 20-month moving mm -hmm. average. And when that cross takes place, that's your yeah, signal. Yeah, that's the golden cross or the death cross. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Luis Yamada. She is the founder of Luis Yamada Technical Research Advisors. She spent 25 years at Smith Barney, eventually becoming managing director of the Technical Research Group uh, and has been institutional investor ranked for a number of years. Let's talk a little bit about uh, women on Wall Street and what it's like. I, I've sat with people like Lizanne Saunders and Michelle Myers, um, and they've told the story of how they've actually seen the industry change over the course of their career. What, did, what was it like as a woman doing charts and technical works 
when when you began well when i began i was really just interested in learning learning technical analysis and working with the group uh i i had i have tended to stay out of the political fray mm-hmm. uh and the administrative fray to be perfectly honest with you so perhaps i'm not as aware of what was going on in the early years in terms of being a woman analyst on wall street uh, but there were many women doing technical analysis. Bernadette Murphy certainly was one, mm-hmm. and Gail Dudak certainly oh, sure. had a partial. Yeah, um, and um, it was probably more as the 25 years progressed that I realized that, to a certain extent, it's very rare. There aren't a lot. There weren't a lot of women. There on are more street. today, but yes. still, it's a relative. Um, exactly. Numerically, it's it's not a big percentage right. of. Uh, of technicians are, are women. So let's talk about how Wall Street has changed over the past 35, 45 years. You, you've been a denizen of the street for a while. How has the, the job opportunities and how women are treated on Wall Street changed over the past few decades? Well, I would say we're starting to get certainly in technical analysis, we're starting to get more more women interested. There's a part of the Market Technicians Association that has a group of women that is trying mm-hmm. to encourage them and act as mentors to bring them forward. Um, I'm not sure to what degree it's changed. I think one of the things um, it can slip. Let's mm-hmm. say there can be slippage because a classmate of mine at Vassar wrote the book called The Good Girls Revolt, which was the uh, discrimination suit that women brought against Newsweek in, mm-hmm. the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And when the case subsided, it went back to normal. So as long as there's attention so, on this? As long as you can focus on it and continue to, to push the careers of some of these women, I think that's great. And as soon as the attention fades, history tells may, us you, you're, you're, some progress might be lost. Well, it's gotten into the government hierarchy now, so I think that the future of women now is probably more palatable. And and I'm even hearing a possibility that one day we might have a woman president. <laughs> that That's actually a genuine possibility. That is a possibility. We'll, we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Um, so you left, you left the street, you left the business in order to set up your own independent shop what was that like well Citigroup in 2005 disbanded the entire technical research department the whole department yeah Kidder had already done it a lot of the big firms had done it you know we can talk about the potential as to why they did it Uh, but the point is they did so we had a, a month or two to pack up and get out we were essentially retired out which was fine um but the clients um really rebelled Really? Yeah. That's interesting. There was quite an upheaval there and complaints. And one client offered her offices. They all said, you know, we want you to stay. We want you to come back. And she offered her offices to us, which we used during the week. And then as we finally got set up, we had a client who gave us a couple of subscriptions up front, which helped us open our doors. Wow. That's fantastic. It was. That's got to be very gratifying when people say... We know they closed the department, but we think you're value-added. Right. Here, let's do this. It was very gratifying, and and the kindness that came through in a business where you don't often see kindness. That's really quite interesting. So that was how long ago? 2005? That was 2005. We we left in February and February, March, and we started up in October. 
That's a pretty quick turnaround. That's Six quick months, turnaround. you're up and running. How much of the thinking behind Kidder and City and other groups closing their technical group is that, hey, everybody has, if not a Bloomberg terminal, they have access to internet charts. Right. Everybody's a technician these days. Yes, that's probably part of it. I think that because you had the financial crisis, there was a money aspect to it as well. I mean, the technical departments were expensive, perhaps, to to maintain. I also think that there was, and this is my theory, that there was a problem from the legal perspective of the fundamental recommendations of stocks that we were putting on sales in 99 and 2000. Huh. And that was that was problematic. I mean, you think about the poor broker, he gets the fundamental guy telling him to buy and the technical guy telling him to sell. What are you going to do? You listen to the technical guy and you wait for the fundamentals to... to the fundamentals are still good. You wait right. for the price chart to tell you it's a when versus a what question. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Luis Yamada. She is a technical analyst and runs the research shop Luis Yamada Technical Analysis. Let, let's get into the nitty gritty of, of technicals a little bit. One of the things I noticed in some of your work is you really like ratios. Tell us a little bit about how you use those. Okay, I'd be happy to. For instance, the Dow-Gold ratio, mm -hmm. which goes goes all the way back to the 20s. And the Dow, or the stock market, and gold tend to move inversely. Mm -hmm. So you have this incredible chart where the uh, peaks in the Dow in two, two, 1929, 1970s, 2000, you had the reversal from mm -hmm. Dow outperformance into a gold outperformance. So the gold outperformed while the Dow was in a, uh, a bear market. Um, but we use it even more significantly in the sector work. We use the monthly sector work and we follow the price of the sector and the relative strength to the S&P 500. You can so, do it. If, with, so when we talk about ratio, let, let's say we'll take the healthcare sector mm -hmm. versus the S&P 500. Right. When that line's going up, the healthcare sector is doing better than the broad index. And when mm -hmm. that line's going down, right. it's doing worse. And you and could look at every sector that way. That's exactly what we do. And, and the concept is you don't go into the market to underperform. Mm -hmm. So you want to look for those sectors or those stocks, if you want to put any stock versus the S&P 500 in a ratio, to find the ones that are outperforming. Or, on the contrary, those that are on the verge of underperforming. And we do that with positive or negative divergences. And if I could give the example. So, so define what a divergence is okay, for, for listeners. A divergence is if the price moves up to a new high and the relative strength fails to move to a new high, mm -hmm. you have an indication that somebody is moving away from this sector and the relative strength is no longer outperforming. And... In reverse, you can have a positive divergence in which the relative strength does not confirm the new low in price and actually puts in place a higher low, and that's an indication that perhaps the sector or stock is ready to turn up. Huh, that, so it, it, as an example, in 2007, we had a tremendous six-year negative divergence. Six-year, remember this is the, the, the bigger the top, the greater the length of, of price evidence that something is 
on the verge of reversing is very important. Um, so we had, a, in 2007, the price of the financial sector made a new high, but the relative strength did not. In 2007, early, the relative strength broke a six-year support. In mm -hmm. other words, the level that it had held before now failed to put in place a higher low mm -hmm. and actually broke the prior low, which is a big sign to us that something is about to change. And since it was six years, it's an important mm -hmm. thing to watch. And if you had gotten out of the financials in 2007, when we got that signal, you would have preserved about 80% of the decline. And, and the financials really got whacked in that period. They they fell. Oh, 80%. Yeah. they they. In fact, that's a big number. We yeah. saw the NASDAQ drop almost 80%. We saw the 29 crash was 89%. almost 80%. It, it's mm -hmm. amazing how Something falls 80%, a broad sector, not a bad time to think about. And you know, out. when you think about 1929 even, it wasn't the crash, the original crash that wiped out the 33. wealth. That was That's correct. The crash moved uh, price from 381 to 181, but when you so broke down, when you broke down thereafter in, in 31, um, you went from 181 to 41, and that, that even, was- Even bigger. Even bigger, yeah. Wow, that, that, so, yeah. so let, me, let me shift this up a little bit on you. Let's talk about some of these secular moves. Moves, and and I use the term secular to mean longer a term, longer term, not just a, a couple not of months. Not cyclical. Cyclical right. is the short, intermediate term moves. Couple of quarters, couple right. of years. Secular can be decades. Long term. If you think of the secular bull market from 1982 to 2000, it had a lot of cyclical bear market interruptions, mm -hmm. but continued on that uptrend. Each bear market interruption. Amazingly, including 1987, held at a higher low. It's amazing. A higher low. Yeah. And 87, people always oh. talk about the 23% day, right. but really 80% was a 40% plus move from top to bottom. I'm doing that from memory, but that's okay. ball, pretty ballpark. Yeah. It, it, it really had a huge run and then mm -hmm. just rolled over. Um, and we had a, we had a structural breakdown in energy uh, in 2014. Mm -hmm. In addition to which, we had the monthly momentum sell signal. So you get sell signals from different indicators for the same sector or the same industry. You have to start paying attention. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. You have a monthly breakdown in energy. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's tanked up their car knows gas is really cheap. It's two and change for premium. Um, that, in New York, that's very inexpensive. What does this mean for oil prices, and for how long? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, this was a uh, this was a relative strength top that had been in place from 2008, and the breakdown was in 2014. Now we're starting to see that oil. That's a long. That's a six-year top. Right, and and breakdown. Um, there's some stabilization coming into energy right now. Whether it can follow through on this uh, year-long head and shoulders bottom, reverse mm -hmm. head and shoulders pattern that we're seeing, um, we'll see. But it looks as though it could continue to lift a little towards 60. But it's not going to happen overnight. These are take time. This, long patterns. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the current bull market. Um, I've had a, a number of people tell me, hey, this bull market is really old. You should go back to 09, and here we are. It's seven years later. Right. But I always learn that a new secular bull market starts from new highs. And the 08, 09 drop and then the 08, 09 reversal 
well, that just gets you back to square one. Mm -hmm. Are we in a new secular bull market since 2013, since the new highs were made? Or is this a seven-year-old market that, or both? Well, it's a seven-year-old cyclical market for sure. Um, we certainly argued that the breakout in 2013 was suggesting that we were in a new secular bull market advance. Mm -hmm. And if we at some point get a correction here, it could be one that simply pulls back toward the breakout or doesn't have to pull back that far. Um, I think we're due. I mean, this is the longest advance that we've had in a, in a bull market since the 90s. Now, didn't we have a near 20% correction late last year, early this year? For some of the indicators, for some of the indexes. Yeah. But not, but not, not all. all of them, right. So we're speaking with Luis Yamada of Yamada Technical Research Advisors. Um, let's talk a little bit about technology. How has the advancement of all this computing power played into the world of, of technical analysis? Oh, how has it played into it? It's made things happen faster. <laughs> it's been more frustrating. Uh, so are things really happening faster? Is, is, and is technology at fault? Or I don't know whether you call it a fault, but credit? to the degree that the high-frequency trading is, what, 80% of the volume, mm -hmm. 70 to 80% of the volume, that's very different from individual investors um, having control over what's happening to the price. Um, to now, we've had quantitative trading. We've had people crunching numbers to make buying and selling decisions for a long time. Right. This is This is really very different in a qualitative way, computers making instantaneous buys and sells and it, it it's not like it was when people were uh manning the terminals right and so what does that mean in terms of of price signals how, how does it change things i'm not sure we have the answer to that yet we're certainly monitoring the price changes as we always have as classic technicians uh, but I will say that we have been seeing more and more false breakouts and mm -hmm. false breakdowns. And by that, I mean, you have a, a stock and price is going sideways, say, between 10 and 15, 10 and 15, 10 and 15, and then it goes to 20, and then it comes right back down into the 10 to 15 range again. So that would have qualified as a false breakout. And sometimes those consolidations can continue, and maybe eventually you get a valid breakout, but sometimes we've seen them break to the downside and enter a bear market. And so the HFT guys are are generating possibly generating possibly. a lot of signals. That that's what we're looking at because that's what's different this decade than two decades ago and, and that's it, a possibility. It's that, fr it's frustrating to say the least. That that's that's fascinating. So, let's talk about customers of yours who are on the buy side. Tell us about generally the value that technicians bring to to a buy side shop. Well, I think that most people in a buy-side shop are looking at fundamentals. Mm -hmm. So if they don't have an in-house technician, per se, and I think more and more firms are having individual technicians. We've, we've been certainly uh, certifying more and more of them, and the big houses don't necessarily have them. Um, they can use us without having to hire somebody mm -hmm. to do specifically technical analysis. We have been speaking to Luis Yamada. She is the manager and owner of Luis Yamada Research Advisors. Be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things technical. Read my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedbacks, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast portion of our conversation. Louise, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank so you, Barry. So I, I know Louise for a long time, and, and I kind of consider myself a, uh, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and, and I have found technicals to be very helpful to my way of looking at the world, looking at the markets. If for no other reason, I want to have a sense of what are the big institutions doing, and you see their footprints in the charts. So- let, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the things we didn't get to before, and, okay, and then I'll do my favorite um, questions. On the broadcast portion, we were talking about the relationship between different markets, and uh, we started talking about gold and, and bonds. T- tell us about that long-term relationship between the two. What did I do with it here? When, when did gold and uh, interest rates top out? Well, the thing that's really interesting, as I said, interest rates have very long cycles. Mm -hmm. And um, the 10-year was in a very severe downtrend. Interest rates rates were going higher. higher. Exactly. And gold started a new bull market as the end of that interest rate cycle came into being. Mm -hmm. And once again, here we have what we- So 1980- Interest rates top out, and around then gold topped out. Right, and but, uh, and then you saw a long, long downtrend. But the gold started to come up in the mid seventies, which is when interest rates started. Which going is up. when interest rates started going up. So it was the bull market in gold started as you moved into an inflationary environment. Makes sense. Rates Makes are going sense. higher. There's exactly. inflation. The price of gold is worth more. However, as rates were coming way down, mm-hmm. gold also started to lift into a bull market. Um, so Argu- it was arguing a- that it was protecting against the deflationary environment. Mm-hmm. You, we did have a, people forget, 19, I'm sorry, 2001 to 08, mm-hmm. the dollar lost 41% of its value. Anything priced in, in dollars, like gold, obviously is going to do well. And we had pretty robust inflation in the 2000s, up until the crisis. That's a pretty good way to put mm. a cap on uh, inflation, is have the entire financial world collapse. Probably uh, kills, it, it, it kills the disease and the patient right. at the same time. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. How, how do you, what do you look at on a daily basis? What do you think about each day when you sit down at your desk? Well, I look at... I look at all these sectors, number mm-hmm. one. I'll look at them from a relative perspective, from an absolute perspective, from a momentum perspective. I'll look at stocks every week or weekend. I will look th- maybe through the, the entire S&P 500 to just get a, a gist of what we're seeing in terms of are we seeing more and more tops? Are we seeing- Company by any- company, sector by sector. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And to, because you think of the equity market, or at least Alan Shaw always did as a triangle with the market at the peak uh-huh. and groups on one side or sectors and stocks at the other. And he always used to say, if you didn't have any, you didn't have enough time to cover all three, the one you could eliminate was the market at the top. Because if your sectors were showing strength, 
you knew which way the market right. should be going. And the same thing for stocks. Makes makes perfect sense. Right. Um, I actually met Alan Shaw at a event. Was it Bill Diener was being honored? At oh, the, might have been. Mm -hmm. um, not too long ago. Uh, and and uh, I, I begged him to come on the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me later. And that was the last I, <laughs> I heard of him. I have two, two guys I've been hunting down. He's one of them. Alan Shaw is one of them. And then Bob Farrell is the other. Oh, and they're so, both very secretive at this point. Uh, they've pretty much, well, they've always been well-known amongst right. certain folks in, in, mm -hmm. on Wall Street. And I don't want to say press shy, but they, this isn't necessarily their audience. I always try and convince them, we need you to have this conversation for posterity's sake. Because my goal, we, you asked me how this came about. My goal is to create a library and, oh, that's and wonderful. basically say, okay, here are the 500 people. Right. Just learn everything these people did and how they became that way. And, and Alan's a wonderful storyteller. Wonderful storyteller. Alan, please, make, make an introduction. Yeah, well, I, I will try and email okay. him to get him out of Shelter Island. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I will go to Shelter Island. I am oh. happy to, uh, for him, I will, I will take the trip. Aside from the fact that Shelter Island is delightful, delightful. happy to stay at the Rams Head Inn or whatever, but uh, I'm happy to do that. I, listen, I went down to Valley Forge to, to Vanguard. I'll go out to Shelter Island for- Yeah, for well, Shore. that way I'm sure he would do it. Really? I think so. Done. Okay. Yeah. Charlie, uh, make a note. We're going to uh, Shelter Island. <laughs> um, so, so you go through, uh, minor digression. So we, you go through the sectors, you go through individual stocks. How much do you pay attention to the news? How, what do you read in the papers? What do you watch on TV? How important is the background noise to what you do? Well, That was I a think, long pause right there. Yeah, it was a long pause because I tend to read the news late in the day and God, so everything's already happened. I read the Times and the Wall Street Journal on the train. Not that I'm trading actively the uh -huh. way I began my career, but I've always read it on the train on the way home. On the way home. Never on the way into the office. Yeah, I find that my mornings are too busy doing, looking, or- I don't want make... to be influenced exactly. by stuff I know is old anyway. I want my but own- But it affects you. Own opinion, right. So, uh, so that raises a related note. How important is psychology to technical analysis? Well, I think that uh, the psychology is on the part of the investor. Always. And what you're seeing him do is telling you where he stands. If he's frightened and you end up with a black hole, which mm -hmm. we call these multi-year, multi-point drops, which we've been seeing with some of the bad earnings again. I remember them in 2000 like mad. Um, and, and, uh, and the same thing for, for the reverse. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, resistance and support. Okay. So that was always explained to me in, in what I took at psychological terms. Okay. So why does support exist? All right. If you have a stock that is trading between 10 and 15, mm -hmm. basically the implication is that each time the price gets up to 15, somebody fundamentally perceives that company to be fully valued mm -hmm. and it sells off. And when it gets down to 10 again, somebody out there perceives this company uh -huh. as now at the point of value where they'd like to buy it. And that can continue for an extended period of time. Now, as the price 
and if the price moves up through 15, basically it's suggesting that somebody out there perceives something positive about this company and is willing to pay more to own it. And that initiates the uptrend. We call it a breakout, and it initiates the uptrend. By the same token, if you've had a trading range, a top, top can take on many configurations. It can be a V top, it can be a head and shoulders top, which looks exactly like a head and two shoulders. You can have a double top, or you could have a horizontal top. And if the $10 level of our example, trading between 10 and 15, is violated, that suggests that somebody out there is willing to accept less to get out. Mm -hmm. And that's an important psychological message that we're getting in that price. So here's how I recall having this explained to me when I was a youngin. You have a, a stock trading in that range, let's use 10 and 15, and people who bought at 15, mm -hmm. stock now goes to 10, and they say, God, if I can only get back to 15, if I can only get to break even, mm -hmm. I'll sell. And so when the stock gets up back to 15, all those previous buyers are sellers there because mm -hmm. they have a memory, price has memory is the expression. And when all those sellers are exhausted, where there's nobody left who wants to sell at 15, that's how you get the breakout and that's why there's no overhead resistance. The flip side of that was people who have been buying at 10 and being rewarded Hey, I bought it at 10, it went to 14, I sold it, it came back That's to right. 10. Traders. I bought it, it went to, and I began on a trading desk. Right. So everything I learned, took me a long time to unlearn it, but everything I learned about technicals and trading was in that context. Hey, at $10, I'm rewarded, therefore my muscle memory is buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when the stock price comes back to 10, I'm a buyer. And once that's violated, uh-oh, this doesn't work anymore and I'm done. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if I'm creating a narrative on what you described or if that's consistent with... I think all three are consistent. Mm -hmm. You've got the fundamentalist who's you know, perceiving that something's changed in the company, either for the better for the breakout or for the worse for the breakdown. And you've got the person who maybe bought it at 15 that went to 10 and he panicked and said, oh my gosh, I hope it gets back to 15, I wanna get out. And then you have the professional trader who sees this range uh, developing and says, gee, this is a great way to make money. I'll buy it at 10 and short it at 15. And that goes on until- Until the breakout of the breakdown. What, one of my all time best trades was a, um, was a loser in Google, and I want to say it was it was range bound between 180 and 200, and you bought it at 180 and sold it at 200, and bought it at 180 and shorted it at 200, and this was going on for a while. And I remember being short Google, it broke out over 200, and I covered it like 202 or 203, and it just never looked back. And I was so pleased with that trade, not only because I was disciplined, but wow, this really did what it was supposed to do. Right. You know, it broke out of the range. I didn't stay, I had made it, you know, what is two or 3% who really cares about that? But I find that the nice thing about charts is it gives you a place to know for sure where you're right or wrong. It, it It's a error correction mechanism. If you don't like something and it's over a certain price, you're wrong. There's no arguing with the story. There's now... No coming up with excuses. The price is the final arbiter. Mm -hmm. And and I've always found not only that, but the risk management side of it really fascinating. Yeah, stuff. and that's the thing. A lot of people hold on to their losers and sell their winners.
the classic rookie mistake. Yeah. Hey, the old the one of the things I learned early on that is wrong is hey, no one ever went broke taking a profit. Mm-hmm. Actually, you do go broke taking a profit, <laughs> especially because you're not having big enough profits, and especially if you refuse to admit error and hold the losers all the way down. It's a it's a classic mistake. Right. So so let's let's jump on some of the questions that we okay. missed um, earlier, and then we'll do our favorite questions. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the markets. From a structural perspective, how do you, other than HFT, how do you see the structure of the market having changed? I don't think the structure of the market has changed. So it hasn't. I don't think so. So, so what is different except today? For the high, except for the high frequency trading. That's the biggest. And if you biggest... want to get into the plunge protection team, which maybe we don't want to get into. No, I love talking about that. Yeah. Because okay. I think that, you know, George, George Carlin used to tell a joke about Indian fighters. And he would say, and it's George Carlin, not me. It's not that Indians are bad fighters just because they started out defending Boston and ended up in San Francisco doesn't mean they're bad. So I always say the same thing about the plunge protection team. Hey, just because the NASDAQ rolled over at 5,000 and ended up at 1,100 doesn't mean the plunge protection team doesn't exist. They're just really bad at their jobs. How, how, and, and here, look at 0809. The market down 57%. Wow, imagine how bad it would have been without the plunge protection team. That's pretty bad. So is there a plunge protection team, and what are they doing? Well, it, it, it's an official entity. I forget the exact Nine, name After 87, it, it yeah, was the think, Committee to Ensure Financial Stability. Reagan, Reagan set this set up, it up, right? That's right. Reagan set it up. And I would say that probably they realize that they can't prevent some of those large downs, uh, but they can hold up something that isn't necessarily got an enormous amount of selling pressure. In other words, we have these days that'll you know start down and end up or go down and end up. Maybe they're in there trying to um, make everybody feel better that mm. it hasn't gone lower. I have no idea when they come in. We don't know, but they buy futures, I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, are, are, wouldn't we see the footprint of what they're doing? And wouldn't there be a giant paper trail one would think. Uh, right? I mean, someone does insider trading for $800 worth of right. options and it shows up on an SEC screen. I can't, uh, you know, I am not a, I, I tend to be a skeptical person by nature. Me too. And when I hear people saying, well, you know, the Fed is propping up, you know, the plunge protection team is propping up the market. How would they keep that quiet? I, 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 I can't imagine that not a single person would leak it. There's just a million examples of things people try and keep quiet, and it eventually gets out. Eventually gets I mean, out. forget it today. The Russians are hacking right. everybody, and the Chinese are hacking everybody's email. Uh, if something like this was out, wouldn't somebody have an, a vested interest in, in, if for no other reason, fame and fortune um, for being the one who proved the plunge protection team is in there doing what they're doing? Right. For... Uh... So you don't buy that they're a, a big influence in the markets? No, I think that they probably have an influence in the markets, but I think they're probably selective. Mm-hmm. Now, in Japan, mm-hmm. they there is no secret plunge protection team. 
their central bank is literally in the market buying stocks. And they've publicly said, we're going to go buy stocks. What does that do to, to markets and charts and what have you? It keeps the prices up. I mean, the Swiss bank is doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Huge positions in these Apple and... The Swissies are buying Apple. A lot of the government uh, banks are buying stocks. Huh. U.S. stocks. And what does that do for them way. and what does that do for everybody else? Maybe it gives them a currency hedge. I mean, okay. I, I, I mean, I have to ask the question whether inflation, as they're not measuring it correctly, we won't, well, we get, know we that won't get into is. that. Well, we can. We could talk about food that. Food and everything else. We wrote about this in the 90s, looking for inflation in all the wrong places. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised as long as interest rates stay low to negative that there's an interest in getting everybody into the stock market and that that's where we'll see the inflationary pressures. In asset prices. In asset prices. Well, haven't we seen the market's up 200% since 2009? It's getting nosebleed territory. It isn't, isn't that? Um, and, and the same with bonds. So my argument about bonds has been there's a shortage of fixed income, sovereign quality paper. Yeah. And you have a ton of buyers. That's what's been driving it lower. But is it really a currency hedge for the Swiss to buy? I mean, I, they must really like the new Apple 7, the iPhone 7. What advantage do they get buying individual stocks or indices? You don't, you don't, I no. don't have, a, I don't have a, a, an answer for that. I wish I did, but so, I don't. So let's talk about inflation. It, okay. It's been said there's inflation in the things we need and deflation in the things we want. Meaning TVs, technology, phones, they just keep getting faster, better, cheaper. Right. Uh, food went up appreciably last decade. The cost of housing went up. All right, close. We, well, we, we wrote about this in the 90s, and it was you know, a question of looking for inflation in all the wrong places, and it was not occurring in the capital goods. It's not occurring anymore in the capital goods arena. Mm -hmm. because there's what we defined at the time as old tech and new tech. Right. And the new tech is what you're seeing in all these technologies and the huge breakout in the information technology sector, which took place in 2012, 2013. You've had this huge relative strength, and now the price is you know, close to a new high, this time perhaps with earnings, mm -hmm. uh, which is telling Very us, different than 2000. Yeah, I think technology is the new industrial complex. No, I, I completely agree. You referenced something off air. I want to talk about that. Okay. Microsoft. Right. So Microsoft, one of the biggest companies, still one of the top 10, what are they, three or two these days? Mm -hmm. It's Apple, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, and Amazon are, are pretty consistently in the in the top ranks. Microsoft is one of the few companies today that was also one of the giants in the 90s. Right. Explain that. Well, it, it, it fits the concept of the bigger the drop, the longer the need for repair. It had run up enormously, mm -hmm. had an enormous drop along with all the other technology stocks. So you had this huge drop from 2000 into 2002. And basically, the technology arena went sideways. Um, for 10, 10 years mm -hmm. before it broke out. And so that was enough of an accumulation, the you know, steel ball wrecker and crane and then and, and the plumber and the electrician and the, and the carpenter came and did their work and the stock was able to move out again. Now you mentioned- Now my Intel looks similar. 
You mentioned of all the big tech companies from the 90s, mm-hmm. most of them have not regra- regained their prior glory or anywhere near it. That's true, but they do have incredible bases, and I suspect they're trying. Cisco's another one. You've got this long, long base. Um, they're buying some of the smaller companies. They're mm-hmm. buying into new technology, perhaps. And uh, I think that, you know, the, the, it's just beginning. You're not buying an NVIDIA. So we're early stages up. of the next bull market in technology. For those, for those companies, Microsoft, yes. Cisco, Intel, who else perhaps. in that space is... Uh, is building a base, base that looks like it's getting ready to break out. Uh, those are the three that come to mind. Mm-hmm. And those were all giant 1990s companies. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So I I know I only have you for so much time. Let's. Um, oh, you asked me a question before. Before what? I get to my favorite questions, you asked me a question on the way in. How did you get into this? How did this come about? Yes. yes. So I've told it on air before, but the short version is I've been a critic of financial media and television and and press for a long time. And the criticism has always been, don't tell a person what, don't give them a fish, teach them to fish. When you say buy this, sell that, that recommendation is good for eight seconds. And as soon as the next piece of news comes along, it's bad. So... I kind of, when when Bloomberg said to me, hey, we have these great facilities, what would you like to do? My answer was, I want to sit down with experienced, successful, interesting people and find out how they got that way. And hopefully we all have something to learn from that. And besides, nobody else is doing long form, deep dives into what makes someone successful, who are their mentors, what do they read, what do they do? How did they become successful? And to my surprise, Bloomberg said, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go do that. It's a great try, idea. Try not to hurt yourself, kid. Yeah. Pretty much. And it was a skunk works project for a long time. Nobody was paying attention to it. And when no one was looking, it suddenly became the most Blossomed. downloaded Bloomberg podcast I there is. I enjoy listening to it, them. I, have, it's, I say it's the most fun I have all week. That's great. I get to sit down with people like you and ask questions. Um uh, last week was Bill McNabb. The week before that was uh, Amwan Damadoran at NYU. You know, how often you get to grab these people and say, right. give me 90 minutes of your time. It's it's the single greatest scam in all of finance. And they're probably pleased. Uh, well, they also they all say, hey, nobody ever asked me these questions. Right. But the fact that somehow I've managed to convince people to do this is, I call it the greatest scam it's I've wonderful. ever pulled. Well, I don't think it's, it's a scam it's, at all. Well, because if anybody really knew who I was, they would say, how did this idiot get oh, to Oh, please. This? No, you don't you understand. You are very talented. I, I am, but having nothing to do with any of this. This is just fun for me. So I, I genuinely enjoy this, mm. and hopefully that, that comes across. I'm still hunting my white whales, so I have Alan Shaw and right. Bob Farrell, and then Ray Dalio and Jim Simons are also on my... So I went undergraduate to Stony Brook for mathematics right. and freshman year visit the campus, the chairman of the math department is Jim Simons. Uh-huh. So I met him a hundred years ago. And by the way, if you would have met him in 1978, you would, wouldn't give him 42 cents. He just looked like a, you know, a chain smoking bearded hippie. You would never give him a dime. And Ray Dalio, every time I watch him on the media, all I can think is that is a terrible format for him. Ray, please come in. I promise it'll be fantastic. 
It's huge. I'm huge all over the country. He, um, he's a he's really a sharp guy. I love his success. philosophy. Mm-hmm. I love his philosophy and how he's thought out the importance of transparency and responsibility. Really, it's, a, it's a, a hedge fund. Why is this philosophy? How did this develop? Nobody gives him time to extract. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. So I, I, I've, I like the format because I get to ask people like you questions like, tell us who your early mentors were. You mentioned Alan Shaw. I did. He was really probably my only... My only mentor, because as I said, I stayed, I, I was pretty much of a cocooner. How, um, how long did you work with, with Shaw for? 20 years. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's really- And then he st- retired and I took over the department. He, mm-hmm. It was a very smooth transition. That was 20, that 2000 and- 2000, mm-hmm. yeah. So he's already, he's been retired for 15 years already. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you ran the department for five years and then- And then went independent, exactly. And that's worked out pretty well? Yes, it's fine. Yeah, okay. it's not, uh, you know, it's it's satisfactory, let's put it that way. So uh, you mentioned and, Shaw as a mentor. What right. other what other investors influenced your perspective? Uh, investors, not so much. Gail Dudak was, has been Traders, a Traders, economists, economists, it doesn't have to be investors. Um, it was really just mm-hmm. Alan. Really? Yeah. And um, so let's talk about books. What what are some of your favorite books? Well, I read your book, of course. I don't know about favorite, but I read the Reinhardt and Ro- Rogoff book. This time is different. Yeah. Eight hundred years of financial folly. Yeah, um, really a little dry, words. bit of a slog, but filled with but fascinating, it's fascinating. Data. Yeah, yeah, and fascinating conclusions too. And Bretton Woods, I'm getting into. I I can never remember everything I've read. I love mysteries. <laughs> Give us a mystery. Uh, by the way, Bill McNabb and I wonked out on science fiction. Uh-huh. So don't feel the obligation to give me Almost McGee any mystery. Mc- somebody gives me a book, I'll read it. Fairstein and uh, mm-hmm. oh, I remember who. I can't even Any mystery. You like mysteries. I like mysteries. You try and guess the end. How good are you at, at figuring it? My wife Sometimes. Is, my wife is always halfway through a book and she's like, yeah, I know who did it. I'm done. Uh, it ruins it for her. Yeah. If she, if she could see it coming too soon, you got you to gotta hide that. So give me give me a, a mystery or two that you really liked. Well, there are all series. That, I'm trying to think of the names of the authors. Barry, I can't remember stuff anymore. Well, you and me both. Um, I can't remember. Okay, Let, let's do another one. Um, how about on finance side? Any books particular to finance that you like? I have read a lot of them, but I can't. Okay. Email them to me, and I'll 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 come up you. with a list. Right. Um, I know you read McGee and Hickey. Let's talk oh, about yes, your- all the uh, all the technical books. Right, McGee and Hickey is the McGee- is the standard. Stan- yeah. Mm-hmm. What about that, any of the? Well, rem- I think that uh, John Murphy's book on technical and books on technical analysis are very good primers. Mm-hmm. Um, what about stock market magic? What about your market book? magic? Well, that was something specific to the to the age in the beginning. To, to I, I went identify. to order that on Amazon and I couldn't get it. Oh, you should be able to get it. I haven't made a penny out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's I thought last I looked it was three dollars or something for the paperback. Um, that was really showing how we I developed you know the concept that we were in a structural bull market. The second part. Asking questions uh, is still very applicable. I had a huge thing on water 
and how water was going to be a, a commodity of the 21st Absolutely. century. And yeah. I remember John Manley came in and gave me a bottle of water. He thought it was such a joke. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, that's what we're looking at now. You have a huge now. drought in California. Huge. People don't realize you buy a bottle of water in the store. It, right. Think about it. Someone turned on a tap. And maybe they reverse osmos purified it, reverse osmosis. Yeah. That costs more than a gallon of gas, than, than the equivalent amount right. of gas. Well, water. look, in the mid-90s, when I got all the statistics from the United Nations, I mean, the Ogallala Aquifer that supplies our entire grain belt was- In this part was, of the country. Yeah, was already, you know, half gone. Right. And At, Not it, even talking about the, the uh, water mains from there to here are, are falling exactly. apart. And, I mean, in Vermont this summer, a lot of people, their wells dried up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's not just in Vermont, but some of the other aspects where they're looking for inflation in all the tech in all the wrong places. And then I did this whole formula on uh, technology and, and why the intangibles have increased productivity. I don't think they're measuring productivity. Correctly Let's talk at about all. that because you're you're preaching to the choir here. Okay. I think well, then you I know have, I I yeah. love I love George Box's line: "All models are wrong, but some are useful." Right. When I look at some of the models, and be it employment and unemployment or um, or productivity, it, it seems like as technology has gotten more and more integrated exactly. into society, the models are just completely diverging yeah, you, from reality. You can't look at the productivity of the old industrial sector or the old industrial worker because they're all being replaced by robots. What I did was come up with the, the, the first uh, law of thermodynamics really fits this whole argument. Energy equals heat minus work, okay? Energy equals heat. Heat minus work. Okay. The energy Work is, minus heat or heat minus heat work? Heat minus work. If energy is the equivalent to economic productivity, heat would be the intangibles, the knowledge-based technology advantage, mm -hmm. okay, and which are not measurable, so we call them intangibles. Um, the faster the chip, the more heat, that kind of thing. And work represents the tangibles. Okay, so now we have productivity equals intangibles minus tangibles. So we know in this new technological era, the work or the cost component are the tangibles, and that's much smaller because you have less than the industrial sector that we've been familiar with. And the technologically efficient corporations have fewer employees. They need lower costs, fewer and different raw materials less as capital. a result of technology. Mm -hmm. And that was the other thing we said, you know, technology is sand, air, and light. You know, there are no old-fashioned raw materials. The heat component, which I call the antimatter or the intangibles, is rising exponentially as a result of technology. So if we subtract something getting smaller, the tangibles or the work, from something getting bigger, the intangibles, then the total energy rises exponentially. In other words, we're just completely measuring this wrong. Yeah. We're, we're not accounting for, look, my office technology. is 14 people. Right. What we do with 14 people today 20 years ago, I would have needed 100 40, people to right. do it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, so, that's well, 10 years ago, it's 40. But the one thing we haven't factored in here is time. So we take another formula, velocity equals distance divided by time. So the productivity that we just solved from the last formula becomes the numerator or the distance in our economic equivalent. And we know from the first equation that the technology benefits have increased productivity significantly and that technology has splintered the time factor. 
So you have the uh, numerator gets dramatically larger from the result of the prior formula, and the denominator becomes a fraction of the whole. So you, the time element is very small, and your productivity is soaring. But and that's not, not showing up. up. The, that's not they're showing not up picking the it up. Yeah, that, and, and there have been numerous attempts to rationalize the old way of measuring yeah, it, and it's just it's totally, working. you know, you look at the total productivity, the total output of the country, right? and the number of workers, somehow they're missing the fact that this number of, what, what are we coming up on, an almost $17 trillion oh. uh, economy? Somehow this is not being appropriately. Right. I don't know if it's the the model, the conception, the execution. Well, but what, whatever they're doing, something is wrong. And the other thing is, I don't think that we can expect inflation to rise in the same way because it's not a demand pull for the product. It's this incredible technological efficiency right. that sidesteps inflationary pressures. At the same time, you have global arbitrage between salaries so that's a natural cap on people's right. salaries rising and inflation used to be something caused by rising salaries and too much money chasing too few goods that doesn't exist anymore you know you've got you've come to the uh, you've come to the mean i remember when uh, they did the uh, clinton did the mexican uh, canadian NAFTA. Thank the you. The worst trade deal okay. ever. So we we did a little picture of a of a of a seesaw, and we said, you know, with these trade agreements, we as in the United States were at the high end of the wage and price scale. Sure. We're the only ones that had anything to lose. Right. Absolutely. And so so now we've had this equalization. Where where do you go now? Where do you go for the we've next? We've arbitraged the the wage differences. That's away. right. That's right. So and maybe well, Africa. Maybe well, we start. I got. I picked up something yesterday, and it was made in uh, Ethiopia. Right. <laughs> as I, I'm going to tell you. It, all all those outsourced jobs. They're all all those manufacturing. They're all going to come back to the United States to save on shipping. I hope so. But but it's not going to be people. It's going to be robots. software, robots, yeah. automation. Right. China, you know the big problem China's facing, and I've had this conversation with a handful of prior guests, they have a billion something people, half of whom are still on the farms and they're trying to move them into the cities. What happens when automation replaces these giant Foxconn and other factories? They're looking at a, a real, you think social unrest is potentially an issue here. Look at the issue that they're going to have. It's, well, it's kind of hard to imagine. We have a population coming up that's the same size, if not larger than the baby boomers. They're over yeah, oh, 77 million, and there are no jobs for them. Right. The millennials are now bigger than the baby boomers. That's right. Which is, which is impressive. And now if they could start working and putting some money to, away, and you know, then maybe things get back to normal. But the problem is the jobs. The interesting conversation uh, I had, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, speaking of no memory, who, who wrote, he's an NYU professor who wrote The Sharing Economy. It was on, he was on our show a few weeks okay. ago. Um, Arun, I'm trying to remember his last name. Oh, anyway, uh, it, it rhymes with maroon, Arun. Um, he had suggested that this current generation is increasingly aware of the fact that they are solo practitioners, they're free agents, right. and the gig economy is something that everybody is sort of embracing because 
you're only if you're only making X as a a job that may not be your long-term career goal, well, you could sell stuff on very you can drive a car, you can rent out an extra room, you could sell stuff on Etsy. There's there's a entire new sharing economy that is being used to supplement regular people. But there's no security in that. No, there's zero security. It's a very different it's type of job. It's frightening. Um except there's still demand for products and there's still demand for services and as long as that demand continues an economy is going to exist it's just different than the one you and I are used to and that transition always looks scary go back 100 years half the country worked on a farm now it's what 2% 4% mm-hmm. right. that transition was also very very scary uh, it's easy to get into a really pessimistic circle of it's all going to be robots. It'll it'll look like Wally, and nobody it will have jobs. Um, I'm hoping that that's not the uh, final outcome. Yeah. But not. but I digress. So so oh. let's jump back to some of our um, other questions. You you had mentioned HFTs as a structural change. What other shifts do you see coming along? Let let me ask you the question that's in my mind these days. The move from active trading to passive, the rise of ETFs, what has that done to the way people invest and trade? I've been trying to figure that out because if you have a basket of stocks in an ETF, you are essentially preventing the individual movement of each of those component members. Mm -hmm. And to what effect that's going to have on the overall market is very hard to tell. I was speaking with a, a portfolio manager, a friend of mine. We were together at Smith Barney way back. And uh, she said what they're doing is looking for companies that are not in any of the ETFs. Because they oh, aren't. Oh, that's aren't, very interesting. So you're screening sure. out. You're screening out the, the things. The big ETFs anyway. Yeah, yeah. So and that's that was a very interesting point because I, I'm not sure that I can give you a, a reason why the ETFs might have a very different effect on the market. The the Vanguard CEO told me that when you look at um when you look at ETFs, they're about fifteen percent indexes, passive indexes, are are something like fifteen percent of the I'm sorry. It, uh, 30% of the U.S. market, 15% of the global market as purchased by institutions, and 5% of the investable assets. It's smaller it's very small. Than, than people realize, but in terms of how money is flowing and the direction it's going, mm-hmm. clearly it's moving in that direction and, that, and has been for years. We've had huge outflows from the mutual funds, but right now they're starting to see that much money going into ETFs. So it's moving out of the funds and moving into the ETFs, which is really interesting. That's just begun uh, to start to equate. First, it was, you know, pulling out completely. Um, I, I, you have to wonder whether it, it, it provides a cushion under the market. Or- it, it certainly, my colleague, Josh Brown, calls that the relentless bid. Yeah. It's that there is always a buyer in, in, the, um, in the asset allocators and the passive uh, Vanguard, again, Bill McNabb, said it's not passive versus active where the change is. It's high cost to low cost. 
And you look at, you want to own I the S&P 500, mm -hmm. you buy it on the Admiral Fund at, at Vanguard, it, it's six basis points. It's practically free. When you look at a lot of active mutual funds are one, one and a half, two percent, um, that, that is a huge drag on performance and people have figured out, hey, I'm not a great stock picker or a market timer. I might as well be passive and, and save on the cost. And that realization, and it took the dot-com crash, the housing crash, and then 08, 09 to sort of force a lot of people into throwing their hands up in the air and saying, all right, I'll just do this. I don't, we'll see if it lasts. I assume this is a secular change that has a way to run, but what, what do I know? You're probably right. No, you're probably right. So, so let's talk about you a little bit. Um, what do you do to relax outside of the office? Oh. Other than read mysteries. Yeah. I, uh, well, now that I'm semi-retired, I have more time. It's not a 24-7 week. Uh, so I do, I go to the museums, I go to the theater, I go to uh, movies, I dance. So I take mm -hmm. dance lessons and there are several dance groups that I participate in. Helps you in. Keep, stay physically fit? Physically fit, lots of exercise. And that has to be good mentally too. A lot too. of exercise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, so our last two questions, my favorite questions. If a, a millennial or a recent college grad came to you and said, I'm thinking of going into technicals as a career, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, it's a great talent to have. If you have any, any, if, I don't know, you'd have to find a place for yourself, which would mean working with a money manager, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I would say if you had any interest in doing fundamental work, learn the technicals and take it with you to any part of the financial world that you go. That's a fair answer. And, and my... Last question, you said you've been doing this for 40 plus years. What is it that you know about investing and technicals today that you wish you knew 10 years, uh, 40 years ago? Or whatever years ago, 30 right. years ago. Um, well, I didn't have any money 30 years ago, so right. I wasn't doing much and you couldn't trade when you were in research. So I never learned how to trade. Uh, basically, I didn't do much of anything, but I think the uh, what I would want to learn from the years that I've been in the market is to hold on to the major trend. My son always says to me, mom, why don't you follow your own advice? <laughs> and, and so you were selling your winners too soon and, and, uh, yeah. I, I know you weren't holding on to your losers, but you were selling the winners, selling too. The winners too soon. That that's, uh, I had Netflix for two points and that was that. That's a winner. That's and, ha a winner. and how has it done since? Huge. Huge winner. Huge. Missed, missed it. Follow your own advice. <laughs> right. We have been speaking to Luis Yamada. She is the uh, manager and owner of Luis Yamada Research Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch, and you'll see uh, on iTunes, and you could see nearly all of the uh, other hundred and somewhat uh, previous conversations we have had. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Michael Batnick, our head of research, for helping us put uh, this conversation together. Be sure and send us your comments, suggestions, and ideas at our email address. That is mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC.